Hello and welcome to this morning's webinar from Immigration Detention to a more effective U.S. Immigration Custody System. My name is Doris Meissner. I'm a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute here in Washington, D.C., and I will serve as your moderator this morning. We're going to begin, as typically is the case, with housekeeping matters. Uh, if you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. We will have a Q&A uh, during the second part of this uh, webinar. There will not be voice Q&A, so please type any questions that you have into the Q&A box or email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, related to this webinar and the, the, the uh, purpose for it is a report that MPI released last week. Uh, it's co-authored by uh, Randy Capps and myself. The title is From Jailers to Case Managers, Redesigning the U.S. Immigration Detention System to be Effective and Fair. You can find it on our website. Our speakers this morning are going to be uh, Randy Capps, the lead author of the report. He's the Director of Research for U.S. Policy Programs here at MPI. Uh, uh, also Nina Sulk, who is the Director of Immigration Research at the Vera Institute of Justice, and Claire Trickler-McNulty, the Assistant Director in the Office of Immigration Program Evaluation at U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement in ICE in DHS. Before turning to the speakers, let me give you a few background comments to sort of set the, the stage for the presentations and the discussion. Uh, the, the United States operates a sprawling detention system. It involves 150 plus facilities. It is largely prison-like in its conditions and it has a long record of health risks, which have been intensified during the period of the pandemic and COVID time. And yet immigration and immigration custody are statistically civil law, not criminal law. Their aim is not to punish. Their aim is to ensure that migrants appear for immigration appointments and for court dates. Also that they depart if after the due process to which they may be entitled, they are ordered removed. So given today's migrant populations as against those basic uh, 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 principles, there's a bigger and bigger disconnect between the population and the purposes and practices which we lay out in this report and which are the subject of our discussion this morning. The report is basically a think piece. It's part of a larger body of work that we call Rethinking U.S. Immigration Policy. This is work that has been going on for a few years at MPI. And as part of that work, this detention report serves in particular as a companion piece to an earlier report that we did on the asylum system, which proposed fixes that have formed the core ideas in an administration proposed rule that was published just two or so weeks ago. So we hope that the ideas that we'll examine this morning, which as I say, really do serve as a companion piece 
to a changed asylum system might similarly find their way into policy changes in the months ahead. So with that, let me turn to our panelists. And first off, Randy Capps, who's going to tell you about the report itself. Randy? Thank you, Doris, for that introduction. And thank you, Nina and Claire, for joining the panel today. Thanks to everyone who's in the audience this morning. Um, I want to start where Doris left off, which is the critiques that are well known of the U.S. immigration detention system. Um, really, the fundamental thing that we highlight in the report is that it's based on a criminal justice system model um, with all of the racial and ethnic inequities that this implies, all of those issues that we have with over-policing, et cetera, have a strong impact on the immigration custody system as well. And that's because um, the system is based on keeping migrants in secure settings, treating them as if they're convicted criminals, often holding them alongside convicted criminals in the same jails. And really traditionally throughout the history of DHS and ICE and going back to INS, Detention's been viewed as the almost the only means that really works to ensure appearance in immigration uh, court hearings and compliance with removal orders. And it's really our central theme in this report is that we need other solutions um, to this issue. These detention facilities have been cited, as Doris mentions, for poor living conditions, poor sanitation, lack of access to healthcare, mental health risks. Uh, that's been highlighted during the pandemic with major COVID outbreaks, at least 26,000 infected and nine deaths, according to official statistics with some unofficial reviews suggesting the toll's been higher. Detention's expensive, costing on average $144 per day officially, again, with unofficial estimates running higher than that, much more than other forms of supervision, including electric, electronic monitoring and supervision and case management forms, which we'll discuss uh, later on and that we discuss in the report. Uh, but another thing that we highlight that people don't talk about as much is that this expensive detention system diverts resources from the rest of the system and it's related to the backlogs we see in immigration court and the poor supervision that we see among the non-detained caseload by ICE and that's because of the priority given the non-detained cases they go first in the immigration courts that leads to longer wait times for other cases and they get the lion's share of the supervision resources. You could see here, and this is the latest available data we have for the non-detained caseload uh, last September, so a year ago, that over 3 million people are actually in some form of non-detained supervision by ICE. That's more than a quarter of the entire unauthorized immigrant population. It's a really huge number. A very limited number of them uh, as of last September, around 90,000, by now it's maybe 110, 120,000 are in the traditional alternative to detention programs that generally include forms of electronic monitoring, while um, as of last September, 19,000 were detained and that number's now gone up to about 27,000. To show you sort of the trend in the caseload within ICE facilities, um, we've sort of saw a mostly steady increase um, from the 1990s through 2019, immediately preceding the pandemic. Uh, this, the number of detainees increased with uh, legislation in 1996 that expanded mandatory detention after the September 11th attacks in 2001 and when then ICE was subsequent, subsequently created. As uh, record numbers of people were being arrested and deported, 
during the Obama administration, the numbers rose again, and then rose further to reach a peak at 50,000 in fiscal 2019, when the Trump administration was um, detaining many, many asylum seekers and many people arrested in the interior. We saw a precipitous drop during the pandemic as the borders were closed, as many migrants were pushed back to Mexico, and as ICE uh, dialed back its interior enforcement activities, we've seen a bit of an uptick under Biden within the last uh, few months, and, and that's mostly due to the increase in border apprehensions. Um, but one of the things we highlight in the report is that this dramatic reduction due primarily to the pandemic uh, really opens an opportunity to, to downsize the detention system somewhat. Another thing to look at is how many of the um, ICE detainees have criminal convictions and how many don't. And in, in most periods recently, there have been more without any U.S. criminal history. Uh, over 90% of those arrested at the border have no U.S. criminal history. And of course, many of them have no history in the U.S. at all. Um, and you can see sort of the top half of this graph, those without criminal convictions, those numbers kind of ebb and flow and tend to peak when border apprehensions peak as they did in 2019 and again more recently. The numbers with criminal convictions of any kind, no matter how small, this could be traffic violations, it could be shoplifting, et cetera, um, was fairly steady in the 15 to 20,000 range preceding the pandemic and then has come down. Um, recently with ISIS ramping back their operations during the pandemic and subsequently much narrower enforcement priorities under Biden that really limited arrest to people with more serious criminal convictions. So this August, about 5,000 detainees had any criminal conviction at all. Um, they were almost all arrested by ICE in the interior. If you go back a couple of years ago to the peak in 2019, 20,000 had convictions, but the vast majority were for very minor crimes. Only 6,000 had convictions for the most serious offenses. And so our takeaway from this is that you really can think of an immigration system that's only focused on detaining those who have been actually convicted of the most serious crimes, and that would be a much smaller system. Finally, the, the rise in border apprehensions recently and the increasing detention of some adult asylum seekers is not associated with detaining people with criminal convictions. They're almost all people without criminal convictions as shown in the prior slide. Okay, so when it comes to that non-detained population, ICE and DHS have limited tools to supervise them. Um, only about 3% of the non-detained caseload um, has been tracked via the electronic monitoring that's often cell phone apps, but also ankle bracelets. Uh, there've been a lot of evaluations of how this works and, and the appearance rates of people in the ATDs. And in past years, um, that track record has been pretty good, but more recent data suggests that it's not as effective as it used to be. And one of the reasons why that may be the case is because the amount of time that asylum seekers and others are spending in the immigration court system is getting longer. It's now lasting three, four, five years, or even more for some cases. Generally speaking, these ATD programs may last up to two years. So it's just, the system has become too long um, for this extensive monitoring um, necessarily to work. Um, so, so now turning to, the, to, to what we think is a more robust form of supervision is um, the family case management program that was a pilot undertaken by ICE in 2017 to 19, about 2000 uh, families involved. Um, this involved very frequent check-ins with nonprofit organization case managers 
and um, access to social services and access to legal services. It obtained a 99% compliance rate with immigration court appearances over the time that it was in, uh, in being implemented, but it was terminated early on in the Trump administration. So this program also did not follow people through to their final removal and couldn't be evaluated in terms of how successful it was in getting people to show up for their final removal dates. Um, there've been some other small uh, supervision programs similar to that case management program that also had 90% uh, or higher court appearance rates operated again by nonprofits, but none of these were also evaluated during that post removal order phase. So from all this, we recommend that um, there, there may be cause to detain a small number of uh, migrants who represent true public safety threats. And by that, we mean national security threats and those convicted of violent and other serious crimes. Now, just saying the phrase public safety threat is controversial. We understand that because that um, concept has grown in scope due to legislation, due to interpretations by ICE and, the and various administrations. We know it's controversial to say that migrants can be public safety threats, but we believe that a small number probably are warranting their, um, their, their detention. And we also, want to emphasize based on that earlier slide that I showed you that this is a fairly consistent number. It's a small number, it's consistent. ICE doesn't need to hold tens of thousands of beds in reserve um, for this population. It's also very well aligned with current ICE interior enforcement priorities under the Biden administration, but it might require some statutory or regulatory change because Congress has mandated somewhat broader groups of migrants, including some asylum seekers and people with post-final um, removal orders. Uh, for the rest, we do believe that supervised release and case management is really the way to go, particularly families and adult asylum seekers apprehended at the border, especially vulnerable populations, people with disabilities, mental illnesses, LBGTQ, pregnant women, et cetera. We know the Biden administration has moved away from detaining many of these vulnerable populations. We think that that's going in a good direction and some people arrested in the interior. But in general, especially with recent border arrivals, we should avoid releasing people with just a piece of paper to go to an immigration judge without any form of supervision or tracking. This is what has grown that non-detained caseload to 3 million. It's what's releasing people into the country without any form of legal status, often not showing up for immigration court hearings. Then they show up on ICE's radar again. Um, it will be challenging. These are big changes we're talking about. They require cultural change. DHS and ICE were really designed to be law enforcement agencies. Um, really focused on deterring using punishment through this, you know, penal criminal justice system model. And we're recommending a shift to a more service and, or, and case management oriented model. And that may be something that can be done in ICE. It may require redesigning and doing through a different type of, of agency. It's also important to engage with the non-governmental organizations that provide the range of social services that we saw were important during the family case management uh, program experience. And in particular, legal orientation and linkages with legal services. 
not just in that case management pilot, but also generally we've seen that having representation uh, leads to a much greater rates of appearance in immigration court hearings. And of course, importantly for migrants themselves, much higher rates of success in asylum and other forms of removal. Finally, again, because we've seen evaluations of what happens during the um, immigration court process, but we know less about what happens after a final removal order is issued, we may need to think about operating more pilot programs and carefully evaluating whether alternative forms of custody work as well during the post-removal order phase. Um, I should add here that the, the, the Family Case Management Program also did experiment with this. They did some what they called reintegration planning, which is notifying individuals who are about to deport it about services available in their home countries upon arrival. And we believe that this could be an important component going forward as well. Um, so with that, I will turn it back to the moderator and thanks again very much for everyone for attending this morning. Okay, thank you, Randy. So um, I'm going to turn next to um, uh, Claire. Uh, and uh, But before I do so, uh, we've had a question come in about the slides. Uh, yes, we will post the slides uh, so you don't have to worry about the note taking that <laughs> passed you by. Uh, the slides will be posted on our website after uh, uh, soon after the event, so they'll be available to you. So with that, uh, Claire, let me turn to you. Great. So, um, hi, everybody. Um, first, I want to thank um, you for inviting me to speak and engage on these topics and also just say how much I really appreciate, Doris and Randy, you, you taking the time to, to write this report. I've been working on these issues for an immigration detention for a really long time. And, and certainly, you know, I think a starting premise has to be that there, there are no easy answers. Um, I do appreciate um, the framework of the report. And I think that the concept of putting sort of different solutions out there for different populations is important. It's a, it's a point that I hope to see um, DHS and ICE um, look further into and grow to make sure that we do have sort of very tailored solutions for the different populations that we encounter. Um, and I think, you know, we should be looking very critically at how we use detention, who's placed in detention, you know, how long they are in detention and, and what we can do to use it, you know, sort of as judiciously as possible. Um, I, I understand, you know, uh, the, the various criticisms about detention. It is very serious to derive someone of their liberty um, in either a civil or criminal setting. Um, it's something, you know, where we should always be looking to see if there is an alternative that would be appropriate. Um, and so I think, you know, as you mentioned, for ICE, it's civil detention solely for the purposes of removal proceedings or to effectuate removal. Um, I think that's an important framing note for all of our decisions and for, you know, making sure that we are solely limiting, you know, the use of our detention resources for those purposes and only when absolutely necessary. Um, I think there, there has been a lot of effort done um, through the years to look at detention, to look at oversight, um, to look at detention standards. But I think even, you know, with the best standards, with the most robust oversight, um, it's still, you know, a, a deprivation of liberty. It's still, you know, very serious um, action to put somebody in detention. And so, um, I think we always need to be very careful with how we're using um, custody resources. Um, and with that, you know, a really important part of, of ICE, which, you know, the ICE sort of system, how it works with detention is doing individualized assessments. Um, and that really is critical. Um, we really should be looking at each case, making individualized determinations about what is the best way to, you know, for, you know, ensure compliance. 
Um, however, you know, I think this isn't a space where we could have more alternatives. We could have more programs that are better tailored for, you know, different groups that, you know, we do work with. Um, and then even with alternatives, as you mentioned, you know, for individuals that the agency encounters that are subject to mandatory detention, we do have very few options. Um, and for those folks, um, we are required to hold them in custody. And, and that way, um, for the individual subject to mandatory detention, there is very little flexibility for the agency. And that's something that, you know, frankly, I only really see changing um, through legal changes. Um, so with that kind of overview, I thought I would talk about some of the things that ICE has been doing related to detention and alternatives to detention, um, some of which relate in many ways to things that are highlighted uh, in the report. Um, the first, which I hope everybody here is, is aware of, is ICE has recently issued two new policies, um, getting sort of at that individualized assessment, getting at when detention may or may not be appropriate. Um, the first policy was on pregnant nursing and postpartum individuals, um, being kind of aware of how um, individuals who meet those criteria might be impacted by being in deten detention. So making sure that we're you know, being very clear about doing those assessments, limiting detention, monitoring, et cetera. The second policy was related to victims of crime. Um, and it was sort of a new um, articulation for ICE to have a sort of victim-centered approach um, and to make sure that, again, as we're assessing individuals that we're or we're aware that they may be a victim of crime, that they may be wanting to work with local law enforcement or other law enforcement agencies pursuing victim benefits or that we are taking that into account, that that's an important thing for the agency to be aware of when assessing how to, to process a case. So there are two policies that sort of relate to sort of the front end. Um, concurrently, we're definitely also looking at our detention network. We're looking at how to sort of modernize it, how to move it you know, towards feeling more civil, less penal. Um, we've worked on <coughs> including sort of a requirement for a, a civil detention plan into our new, our renewed and new detention contract. So we're asking our partners to provide us with their ideas and thoughts on how to sort of um, increase, um, you know, different parts of the detention, you know, life, like elements of detention, such as visitation, legal access, how to make it more, you know, expansive for the individuals in our custody, you know, medical care, segregation, et cetera. So we are, we are trying to take a hard look at how we can um, work with our, within our current framework to make improvements um, as well. Um, additionally, you know, uh, not only just, you know, the, the physical, the, the, the conditions are important, important, but I think for me personally, you know, it's critical that we're moving people through as expeditiously as possible. Um, so we're also partnering with USCIS to look at <clears throat> how the, the credible fear interview process is going. Um, as I think, Randy, you highlighted, a lot of our population right now is coming from the, the Southwest border. And these are individuals who are in expedited removal. So making sure that they can have, you know, the appropriate space, they can have privacy, et cetera, while they do their credible fear interview, um, and that those can happen quickly so that their cases can kind of move through and they're um, you know, we're not having individuals stay longer than, than necessary in custody. So that's just another uh, thing that we're doing. We've also done a lot of work on sort of COVID-19 uh, mitigation strategies. We do have a, a fairly robust um, policy structure on pandemic response, focusing, you know, similar to public health guidelines on social distancing, testing, um, um, and then uh, vaccinations. And we're certainly hoping to um, increase our vaccination rollout um, moving forward. A lot of that's been tied with um, state and local health authorities, but it's something that we do want to continue to pursue. 
So those are some general highlights on the on the detention end of what we've been doing. And I also want to talk a little bit about where we're going and, and what we're doing in terms of alternatives to detention. Um, I know you, you kind of like this, but our, our, our use of ATD has been growing um, quite um, exponentially since in the last year. Um, we're up to close to 125 participants in the ATD program, which is much higher than it's been historically. Um, we've also sort of been working on expanding um, how and when individuals are put on ATD. We've, we've done a lot of work expanding our ATD along the Southwest border to look at ways to deploy it along the border so that individuals who are entering the country and seeking asylum can be enrolled in the ATD program um, as they then transit to their final destination to complete their immigration proceedings um, you know, in a, in a non-detained fashion. Um, we're also working to sort of manage the, the technology resources that, that pair with that program. So if individuals are put on sort of one of our higher levels of technology monitoring, the like GPS ankle monitors, as soon as they report in, we can um, cycle them down and put them on the, on the lower form of monitoring or maintenance monitoring as they then move through their case, which I think does align with some of the, the thinking in the report of making sure that we're, we're using ATD through the life cycle, but tailoring it to kind of the, the individual circumstances um, similar to the family case management program that you mentioned, um, ICE has really worked on expanding access to um, stabilization services and, and social services similar to, to what was in that family case management program. Um, as part of the ATD program we have now, we have two separate programs, wraparound stabilization services um, and ECMS, which is extended case management services. And those services um, we have made sure are, are much more widely available now. Now um, all ATD participants can have access to those services. We've also expanded where the services are from 54 to 80 cities. Um, and so, you know, it's important for us to make sure that the individuals are uh, receiving kind of the support, the case management, so they understand the proceedings, that it allows them to more effectively um, go through the the process. And so some of the services there are, you know, like trauma-informed therapy, family therapy, um, and then sort of supplemental services evaluation referrals for specific services. So um, I think it, <clears throat> that's, a, that's an important part of the program, and I'm, I've been really excited to see how it's been growing. Um, and then, you know, Randy, again, you also highlighted that part of the family case management program was a return and repatriation element, and that is something that we've actually also started work been working to look at again as well, um, understanding the kind of very intense nature of um, receiving a removal order, um, how complicated it is to, to sort that out personally, and again, the kind of maybe stabilization support that's needed. Um, so we're trying to, we're, we're developing a program there where we'll have um, NGOs provide sort of services um, focusing on helping individuals in their sort of post-removal order posture. And some of the goals of that would be, you know, providing support, education, information um, to help, you know, reduce anxiety, help inform individuals of what they'll be experiencing upon return, um, help them, you know, plan for it. So we do think, you know, sort of support in the front end to go through the cases, support in the back end to help folks, you know, more, you know, calmly and effectively um, depart um, would is helpful and will help, you know, also in enhance kind of the overall effectiveness of the ATD program. Um, hopefully we can have good results there, build confidence in the program and help, you know, growing these sort of um, alternatives to detention um, 
and case management centered options. Um, we are also hoping to launch um, additional case management programs. We did issue a, an RFI a few months ago looking at um, case management services. So we are, we are hoping to um, you know, just expand the overall portfolio of, of, of different options to manage you know, our non-detained docket. Um, and so I think I might be actually about time, um, but uh, I like to say, I really do appreciate the, the ability to, to come and speak to you about this. I appreciate the work and the thought that you put into the report. And I think overall, you know, there were a lot of things that really, really resonated with me and I agreed with um, overall in the, in the report. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Claire. Uh, we have lots of questions popping up and particularly questions that have to do with uh, ATD programs and some of the issues you've been talking about. So but thanks for that overview. That's very helpful. So we want to turn now to you, Nina. Uh, Nina Salk at the Vera Institute may be uh, uh, the best expert in this field on supervised release. The Vera Institute has been uh, dealing with the criminal justice system and with various uh, uh, aspects of reform, uh, bail bond, uh, all kinds of issues for many, many years, highly respected. And Nina knows this area all, uh, better than anybody I know. So Nina, we'd love to hear from you now uh, in reacting to the report, clearly to things that you may know from what Claire has said, but um, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Doris, and it's really nice to be here with you, Claire and, and Randy and others. I'm going to read some, some notes so that I make sure I stick to my time and leave enough time for, for what I imagine will be a very robust discussion. Thanks so much for inviting me, of course, to be part of this discussion of this provocative new paper, and, and as Claire noted, for attempting to advance not just critiques, but proposals for solutions, which is no easy task in, in this system, as we all know. Um, I wanted to just add for those who don't know me that I've spent much of the past two decades conducting research on the human impacts of US immigration policy, both in the United States and transnationally and, and teaching. So I, I know the literature and I'm gonna draw on that a bit in my comments um, on the US criminal justice and immigration systems. Um, as many of you likely know, Vera, where I oversee our immigration research portfolio, began our work in this space 25 years ago, um, and Doris was, was engaged in this, when members of the Clinton administration reached out to see if we would pilot an alternatives to detention program soon after IRA-IRA's passage, um, which obviously vastly expanded the categories of people subjected to detention and deportation. That program, the Appearance Assistance Program, which we call the AAP, uh, was based on the notion that supervised release could be a viable alternative to physical custody. The findings from AAP have helped move the field toward what have been referred to as alternatives to detention. But I guess I wanna begin by underscoring that Vera no longer believes the model we piloted and proposed 25 years ago is the one we need today. Over the past 15 years, Vera has been leading nationwide efforts to advance universal representation for people facing deportation. We've been working in partnership with government and legal service providers and grassroots organizations around the country to build a national legal defense network that's currently working inside nearly 100 facility, 150 facilities detaining unaccompanied children and over 65 facilities detaining adults and families. 
our work in this space has produced ample evidence that universal legal representation, not government supervision or surveillance, is the right broad quote alternative for ensuring people have access to protections and rights and appear for their proceedings. We and many of our partners in the field are convinced that a universal, zealous, person-centered representation program coupled with optional community-based supportive social services are the services the government should prioritize funding in order to ensure due process and protect people and families facing deportation. And I want to underscore, and Randy touched on some of these, these numbers, in programs Vera has been involved in and evaluated, like the New York Immigrant Family Unity Program, the Los Angeles Justice Fund, and in the SAFE initiative we run in partnership with 22 jurisdictions around the country, almost every client provided with universal representation has continued to appear in court throughout their immigration court proceedings. There just isn't evidence more government intervention than that is needed, so much as strengthening a system that centers due process and procedural justice. And as a technical note, I guess, Randy, this is to you, I wanna encourage the field to really think about using continued court appearance, not orders of removal and absentia as the appropriate measure of compliance. And I can get into that technical stuff. Um, we really don't believe more pilots are needed given the strong evidence we and others have produced in support of this recommendation. Um, I also wanna raise the issue that the system as it currently operates cannot be fair. And so replacing detention with supervision just doesn't go far enough to solve for that. And it's hard to think about reforming custody operations without simultaneously talking about the immigration courts. And, and I'm sure there can be a part three or four to this paper that does that. But um, I guess I just wanna note, it's really remarkable such high numbers of people do continue to appear in court given how patently unfair and, and biased against respondents the system is. And I would encourage MPI to shift some focus away from ensuring we design systems of surveillance and monitoring to induce compliance toward the government's many practices that set people who are otherwise inclined to comply up for failure, making it appear as though they do need more monitoring. And I'm happy to go into to more detail about what some of those practices look like. And I'm sure there are many of folks on the call um, who see this playing out in their everyday work. But, but I just really want to emphasize, if we don't address the many ways in which the government's practices are unfair, people's disengagement with the system that's stacked against them may be read incorrectly as further indication of the need to surveil them as opposed to a need to, to fix the system more broadly. And Doris and Randy, I, I appreciate that the paper suggests we minimize the use of detention and support that, and would encourage you to go even further to acknowledge there's no evidence immigrants generally are a public safety threat, something supported by decades of literature. We should not subject people who have already served time to civil detention. And there's no evidence immigrants released from detention present any risk to others save in a few statistically anomalous singular incidences. I encourage you to go further to acknowledge even more the racist drivers of the criminal to immigration system, the punitive nature of detention and the need to end civil detention as we build a system that centers due process and human freedom and where universal and zealous representation is, is federally funded for all. I'll make a couple more just small technical notes that 
I'm sure we could pursue further before I turn it back to the moderator. Um, you know um, the, the challenges with for-profit detention. I'd encourage you to also look at the, the larger problem of ICE's use of beds in a vast network of local jails around the country and the need to, to reform that system. Um, I'd also encourage you to highlight how arbitrary and capricious and thus patently unfair the immigration bond system is. Um, and I wanted to know, finally, while we support the idea of community-based social services, um, there's just not great evidence that government agencies involved in removal operations can advocate against the system and its many flaws in the same way that independent organizations can. And so would encourage you to rethink the idea of, of the government being the entity to run those initiatives. Um, I've got lots more to say about this provocative paper, but I'm going to pass it back now for the, the moderator. Well, thank you, Nina. That's a that's a very encompassing list and um, uh, lots of um, uh, good questions in terms of, uh, of, of both follow up work and things to uh, try to reconcile. Um, uh, let me uh, we have a whole set of questions that have been um, that have been written in. Uh, let me just remind in terms of the Q&A before I go into the actual questions. Uh, please type your questions into the chat uh, or email to events at migrationpolicy.org, uh, or you can tweet them. And um, so on the questions that we have, I'm going to start just by asking you, um, uh, Randy, whether there's anything that you want to say to Nina's point about pilots. And uh, whether 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 we know enough to go, you know, full scale uh, into supervised release, or 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 what the rationale and thinking is for a more steady, uh, you know, a more incremental approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with Nina that we've had enough pilots. I mean, she's talking about the 1990s family case management program was done several years ago. There's plenty of evidence that we can use a kind of a supervised release approach. I mean, I think what Nina's going further than that and saying that just having the legal representation in and of itself at the core as opposed to the supervision at the core is sufficient and, and that they've got a lot of evidence of that as well. Um, you know, I think one of the points we start to build on and we'll probably build on going forward from this report is, is that there is coordination necessary. There's coordination necessary between DHS and the enforcement side and the, the side for representation and case management. That's, I think, part of the reason why I personally feel it is important that there be a government role in this. It can't be just completely adversarial with the government. Um, but at the same time, I agree that going beyond pilots to, you know, making that a form of supervised release with legal representation, the default as opposed to just a pilot is, is, is where we would go. The exception to that, as we note in the report, and I noted in, in my comments now, is that um, we don't know as much about how this works once someone's been ordered removed by an immigration judge once they've exhausted their appeals. And so there may be a little bit more of a need for experimentation and evaluation uh, during that part of the process. Thanks. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Uh, Claire, I'm going to turn to you next. Uh, as I said, there are a number of uh, questions that have 
been uh, written in about uh, alternatives to detention and electro electronic monitoring. You talked about that a, a, a good deal in your presentation. So let's go a little further with that. Um, and uh, one of the questions has to do with the costs of electronic monitoring and their being born at being expensive and being borne by the um, uh, by the person being monitored. Can you explain the rationale for that and whether uh, uh, there are changes that are, uh, uh, you know, how how that might be affected by the changes that you described? Sure. So I I'm going to say that for participation in our alternative detention program, there is no cost to the participants. So the, Part of the, the, the technology that is used um, is provided by the government um, oh. to the participants. So there's not a cost to participate in our alternative detention programs. Okay, well then that's, a, that's an important information point. Um, then I mean, there's uh, a cost to the government, but not to the participants. Right, 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 right. Uh, the, the question implied that the, that the, that the person bore, bore a cost. Um, so um, um, the, um, the, the question, uh, there's a question about um, uh, detention and criminal convictions. Um, and uh, I'm just going to read a, a sentence or so because it's a long question. Uh, studies have shown that increasing detentions and deportations based on criminal convictions does not, in fact, impact public safety and does not result in decreased crime rates. Um, so, um, Claire, again to you, um, you know, in light of that, which is clear in, in, in the research, how do you see ICE threading the needle where that is concerned um, uh, as against the mandatory detention and other uh, issues that, uh, that, you know, that the government uh, is dealing with in terms of congressional uh, uh, statutory requirements? Sure. Well, I mean, it's definitely an important question, and it's certainly a very um, complicated thing for the, the agency to do. And um, I think it is, it is important that we are doing kind of robust evaluations of individuals. Um, we're looking not only at danger to community, but risk of flight. So making sure that we are very carefully looking at individuals um, to make sure that they meet one of those parameters before placing them in custody. And so in terms of broadly, you know, again, the use of ICE detentions for compliance with immigration proceedings and removal. And I think we should be looking at it as that element of the immigration process, um, not so much um, specifically as um, following on from the criminal justice process. Though so obviously a lot of our, our enforcement programs are are connected to criminal justice processes. Um, and you know, as mentioned and discussed for mandatory detention, um, where we are um, encountering somebody, putting them in custody who is subject to mandatory detention, we are required to keep them um, in custody throughout the proceedings. So I guess my, my broad answer to that is it's a very complicated question and I don't know if there is a very good clear answer right now. Okay, let me turn to you, Randy, for a question that has to do uh, uh, with um, criminal convictions in that you said in your comments, quote unquote, without U.S. criminal convictions. The question is, how important is that qualifier U.S.? 
Um, yeah, I, I, I want to say a couple of things about the criminal conviction side of it. First, yes, the data that I was showing um, are about uh, people with U.S. criminal convictions. And I don't know the extent to which ICE, DHS, other federal authorities would have information about criminal convictions in other countries that might fall under a national security kind of a category. Um, I do want to also reflect on the number of questions about the double jeopardy, sometimes the term that people use for people who have completed their sentences and done their time or otherwise been punished for crimes in the US and then additionally get detained. Um, it is true, uh, you know, speaking as a sociologist and, and a demographer that there's, there's no evidence showing that uh, non-citizens, unauthorized immigrants or otherwise are more likely to commit crimes than anybody else, regardless of, of whether or not they have a prior criminal record. Um, but, you know, this, this I, the information about people with criminal convictions being released and later on not going on to reoffend, a lot of people have been detained due to minor criminal convictions. That has been a huge problem with the system. That is something that we're arguing shouldn't be happening. It's a lot harder to make that rationale for someone who's, you know, been convicted of an assault or another serious violent crime. It's just a much harder rationale to make. I don't think we know enough evidence about that. I do think there's a very valid public safety concern with that group. And so that's sort of where we have come down. Um, that is, a, I, I want to reemphasize that that is a small number of people. We're talking about the most serious criminal convictions. Um, but even that is much narrower than the mandates that Congress has set. Even that is even narrower than the priorities that the Biden administration has set to some degree. So we think there just needs to be a, a more robust conversation around that. But I doubt that, that we're ever gonna be in the position that no one at all would be detained for immigration purposes. Okay, I'm gonna move now to questions about the ICE culture. We have quite a set of questions about the ICE culture. We have made a big point of that in this report uh, in terms of what the scope of change that moving primarily to a supervised release model as compared with a detention model would truly entail. Uh, Claire, you're at ICE, you work with that. Nina, you've worked with the, uh, government agencies the, uh, all this time and you're advocating a, a, a rather rapid shift to supervise release. So I'd like all of you to make a comment about the ICE culture as you see it and the um, uh, uh, likelihood or not, or the steps that would be required to shift to primarily a supervised release model from the model that currently exists, which I think it's fair to say is based on a broadly held belief that detention is the only real way to assure, ensure appearance. I don't wanna overstate that, but uh, I, I think that's fair to say that that is quite characteristic. So uh, let's just start with, uh, let me start with you, Claire. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, I think, I think I would say that I, it broadly at ISMS, speaking very broadly, um, you know, there is a sense that that detention is the only way to um, ensure appearance at immigration proceedings and ensure, you know, completion, um, you know, you know, the final if the final outcome is removal of the immigration process. So I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done to help um, kind of 
ensure that the workforce is aware of the success of various programs um, to do kind of a lot of good um, data work on showing the success of these programs as we were expanding the you know, case management programs, um, as we, we can demonstrate compliance, making sure that, that the workforce is, is seeing that information, that they're aware that these programs are effective, they're efficient, they are, they are, they are cheaper than custody. So I think a lot of it is just making sure that we are appropriately, you know, kind of internally tracking and then able to present that information to show the overall effectiveness, to, to build the sort of trainings, the protocols about when the program should be put into place. And I think, you know, I've seen it in, in different areas kind of at the agency that sometimes with change, there's sort of a lot of resistance up front, but then with appropriate sort of um, as, 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 as it sort of weaves into the agency culture, um, you know, different things can be can be embraced in different ways. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just, you know, education, training, persistence, and making sure that, you know, we're really um, making alternatives um, kind of on the table and part of part of the assessment and analysis going forward. And that's, that's the way that, you know, it's a big bureaucracy, all governments bureaucracy, it's not going to be a fast shift, but um, ways that we can move towards slower shifts, you know, to new and different programs focused more on you know, non-detained case management. Okay, Nina, what would you say about culture change? Doris, I guess one thing I'd say is a lot of the conversations in the field are, are questioning why these programs would be run through ICE, given its, or DHS more broadly, given its enforcement functions, and, and um, thinking about where money that's that's being channeled through ICE to contractors or ICE itself right now could could be allocated um, to better allow community-based organizations to provide these services in a more independent way um, that would that would sort of liberate these services from the same agency that that's engaged in this enforcement function and so. I guess that would be my broad note um, and no disrespect to Claire but. The federal agency you work for is, is engaged in this function. And so that would that I think is where the conversation has been going. And, and I'll also note, you know, on my point on, on the evidence we have, and it's a fairly ample amount of evidence at this point about people with universal representation. And it's important to make that note because universal representation means everybody, regardless of the potential strength of their claim, is getting counsel, right? Not just people who've been been picked by lawyers because they have strong cases. Um, those folks, they show up in court. Kids show up in court with lawyers. Adults show up in court with lawyers. Families show up in court with lawyers. And so the recommendation would really be to, to center the focus on, on representation and then to allow people to enlist themselves in optional social service programs. We could call them case management. I'm avoiding that term because it's feeling like there's a lot um, being, being mixed up in that, that ATD and case management language. Um, okay, so, so, so I, I think, um, you know, Nina raised a couple of good points. You know, who, it's who can provide the services, it's how they can be coordinated with, um, with, with the immigration agencies, and it's who within the federal government is really responsible for overseeing these programs and for, you know, let, letting out the contracts, et cetera. And, and, and those are sort of three different questions. Again, I, I think an important point for us 
um, is that there still needs to be some coordination with ICE and with DHS throughout the process. I mean, because we still feel it's important that people get represented and they get the services that they need. Um, I, I agree that that will, the evidence suggests that that will help them um, um, raise compliance rates with immigration court hearings. But in the end, some people will lose their cases. And when they do lose their cases, then they need to be prepared for uh, for removal and leave the country either voluntarily or when so ordered. It, it, the system just isn't going to work from a border security point of view, from a public opinion point of view, if that doesn't happen. So, um, you know, creating a new agency or a new player in there or moving the, the, this function outside of DHS to HHS, DOJ and other department creates coordination problems too. So there, there's pros and cons, you know, to, to getting to getting it outside the culture. But it did, it did seem, viewing it as an outsider during the family case management process that there was a limited embrace of that program from ICE and it was immediately terminated at the beginning of the Trump administration, which shows how fragile it can be. Okay, um, picking up on that, I have a question here, Nina, that refers explicitly to comments that you made, um, but it's an important point that um, I'm going to read again a little bit of it. Um, the questioner says it's discouraging to suggest that compliance with removal orders should not be considered a needed measure of system effectiveness. Universal legal representation should indeed be central to a fully reformed system, but we won't get there without broader public support. The system has to be serious about removal at the end of a fair process. If the person does not obtain relief, if we are about to win and hold such public support. So what would be your reaction, Nina, to that? And uh, if either Randy or Claire would like to uh, um, uh, comment as well, uh, we'll certainly be happy to take that comment. Doris, I wanted to clarify first because maybe it wasn't clear. I wasn't um, saying we should prioritize court appearance over appearance for removal. I was saying the, the way we measure court appearance should not be by looking at orders of removal in absentia, but rather the opposite, which is people's actual physical appearance in court. And there is some small literature on that. It's a kind of nuanced point for probably for Randy and me to talk about offline, but that, that was the point I was making there. Look, I think we are getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the, the system reform to talk about compliance with removal orders until we, we feel like removal orders are being given in a fair way. And I guess my point is, we don't have a system yet that is balanced and fair. Most people still go to court without counsel. Um, people don't have counsel at the onset of their cases and the, the system doesn't work as well for you if you don't have access to legal representation. And so I'm happy to engage in a conversation about appearance for removal once we feel like we have a system in which people feel the removal order was issued fairly. And, and I wanna note on that point, and I said this to Randy when we were prepping for this call, when we ran the appearance assistance program 25 years ago, one of the things I was assigned to do was interview people who appeared to, to depart the country. 
and, and asked them why did they appear um, for their removal. And, and there was a kind of procedural justice reflected, a notion of procedural justice reflected in what people said that, you know, Vera gave us access to information and lawyers and supported us. And in the end, um, I didn't win. And so it felt fair. And I don't, I don't have any sense that the many people I've interviewed and, and the attorneys we work with in the system would say that that people think the system is working fairly for them now. And so that's my long winded answer. And Randy and Claire may have may have other thoughts. Uh, Claire, would you like to comment? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, kind of what Nina has said and, and the question reflect a lot of the the complex tensions that we're, we're dealing with right now in terms of feelings of fundamental fairness with the system, but also, you know, the prior questions about culture change and how can we get kind of a, an embrace by the agency of these programs. And I do think that seeing, you know, success in the full life cycle of the cases, which may see, which does include removal is going to be important um, for that end of it. So I think, um, you know, we're, we're working with a lot of very complex issues and a lot of things that could certainly use from reform, including the overall, you know, immigration uh, legal system. So um, I, I, I appreciate, you know, your frankness on this and I understand what you're saying. And I, I and Randy, a lot of your comments have, have really resonated with me. And I, um, I just, like I said, it's, I think it's healthy and good for us to have these conversations, to look at all these problems head on and um, understand that it's going to be um, kind of a long, complex process to to making a lot of the reforms that I think we all we all want, even if we all see sort of different paths to get there. Um, okay, Randy, would you like to add anything? Um, yes, I mean, I I just I I think what what Nina sort of hit on is sort of the the main theme, and this came through when when we were as outside advisor to the family case management program. People do believe that that the system is fair. They understand it. They can participate in it. It takes legal representation generally to make that happen. They are much more likely to, to appear in immigration court. And there's anecdotal, it hasn't been fully evaluated evidence that they're much more likely to appear for their final removal. That's, that's the goal. And there've been several questions about how this goes with electronic monitoring, with checking in with ICE, with case officers who aren't friendly, uh, negative experiences. We know there are paperwork problems with people getting their, their notices to appear and the right dates and the right locations. And it, it's just all of these elements really, it has to be a system that, that works not just for the bureaucracy, but for the migrants who are participating in it. That's really central to it. And it's just an open question as to what culture changes are gonna be necessary to make that happen. But if that doesn't happen, then it's still a punitive system. Okay, well, there are lots of other good questions up on the board. And so I really wanna thank the audience for engaging so fully and apologize that we can't take more of them. Um, the, the, we have covered some of the main broad points, but this is clearly a continuing conversation. And uh, so we hope to stay engaged in that continuing conversation. And we uh, uh, look forward to uh, being in touch on other aspects of this. But for the moment, we need to close out. 
And uh, with that, thank you, uh, tell you that we will have the audio of this session available on our website uh, tomorrow. It will be posted, as I said earlier, the slides will be posted as well. If there are reporters that are interested in following up, please contact our Director of Communications, Michelle Middlestadt at mmiddlestadt at migrationpolicy.org if you have questions. And then uh, I will remind you again that the report that we were talking about today from jailers to case managers redesigning the US immigration detention system to be effective and fair is posted on our website, www.migrationpolicy.org. Thank you all for participating. Thank you in particular to our panelists. Uh, uh, good day to everybody. And with that, we'll close.